Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. If you like this podcast, can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science. You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts, and its name tells part of the story. The big picture questions and the most interesting research in science. Seth and I are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I am Molly, and I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us, and we have fun along the way. The show is called Big Picture Science, and as Seth said, you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts. Coming up on this episode of The Box of Oddities, reanimating the dead, artificial life forms, and bizarre traditions from the theater. The Box of Oddities. If it's weird, we talk about it. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Pat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. Well, we have made the decision to uh, to move, and that's kind of daunting and a bit overwhelming. We've got maybe four months left on our lease, and so Kat has already started organizing and packing stuff, or at least pulling boxes out of the closet that we packed last time and didn't unpack when we got here, <laughs> and making a nice pile. Yeah, I unfortunately have this really interesting habit of getting overwhelmed with all the things I need to do, mm-hmm. and then hyperfixating on something that is completely non-relevant to our current needs. <laughs> <laughs> like... Um, so you remember a few years ago, I was going to my friend's wedding in Albuquerque, and uh, <laughs> I had to do episodes before I left. I had to make sure that I had, you know, like my nails done and all that business before I got out there. Right. I had so much going on. You had a long list written on the refrigerator <laughs> yep. door. And instead, I made an earring holder. I remember that out of a out of a piece of uh, paneling that we pulled out of the RV. Yeah, and I was like, "You just see, I had put all these holes in it, and so on." And then I hung it on the thing, and you're like, "Mm-hmm, are you ready to record?" And I was like, "Yeah, no, no, I, uh, uh, my brain." Are you ready to record now? I am. Yeah, good because we are recording. Great. We hear a lot today about the giant technological leaps forward that we're making in the field of artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. Applications like chat GPT, you're hearing a lot about that, I'm sure. Yeah, you keep bringing it up. Without question, we are living in the age of AI. We have developed artificial intelligence uh, in its truest form, and it's and its efficiency and, and capabilities are increasing exponentially. It's really interesting that you're talking about AI because I just used AI to make our social media post today. Ooh. And uh, basically, I was I was talking about how crappy it was. So I'm curious to see what you have to say. 
Well, one thing AI can't uh, replace is the ability to make quality earring holders by hand. Shut it. That's enough. Even though AI is a relatively recent thing, our quest for artificial life goes back much, much further. The idea of taking something that's inanimate and somehow breathing life into it is just about as godlike an act as there possibly could be. And we're certainly familiar with this as it was written about in Mary Shelley's story of Frankenstein, how Dr. Frankenstein pieced together a monster using body parts from corpses that were scavenged and then using high voltage electricity trying to animate his creation. Danger, danger. High voltage. In previous episodes, we've talked about the uh, crude experiments in the 19th century that were intended to reanimate corpses using electricity. Yeah. Which inspired Mary Shelley, in fact. One of the earliest documented examples of this happened on November the 4th in 1818. A chemist from Scotland named Andrew Urey on that evening stood next to the dissection table in the Anatomy and Dissection Theater at the University of Glasgow. Lying on that table was the fresh corpse of a murderer who had just been executed moments before when he was hanged by the neck. And as soon as he was pronounced dead, they cut him down from the gallows and quickly took him to the anatomy and dissection theater. And the theater was packed because this was no ordinary cadaver dissection. Instead of a scalpel and a bone saw, Yuri had two metallic rods that had been charged by a 270-plate voltaic battery. And when he touched the rods to various nerve positions, the body would convulse and writhe about, much to the delight of all of those in attendance. It was a weird time. I totally would, would have gone to a dissection theater. <laughs> Absolutely. I think I would go to a dissection, but I don't know that I would go to an electric prodding. Oh, I know, honey. I would do either, for sure. We have varied interests. You make handmade earring holders and... I go to dissection theaters. I was just going to say, you bought a fake Rolex, I bought $17 worth of cashews. Yuri later described the experience to the Glasgow Literary Society when he said, quote, when the one rod was applied to the slight incision on the tip of the forefinger, the fist being previously clenched, that finger extended instantly. And from the convulsive agitation of the arm, it seemed to point to the different spectators. Some of them thought he had come to life, but of course he had not. But that would be weird, wouldn't it? You're sitting there, you got front row seats to the, uh, the reanimation of a freshly killed corpse. They touch the metal rod to him and the, and the corpse points right at you. It's interesting because probably they used a murderer because they knew that what they were doing was obscene and they didn't want to do it on like a decent well, yeah, person. That's... But also like, who's trying to reanimate murderers? <laughs> well, then you'd have to just murder them again. That seems like a lot. But even before these experiments to reanimate or create artificial life with electricity took place, there was an alchemist quest to create a homunculus. Homunculus. Homunculus, according to Wikipedia. Homunculus is a Latin word that actually means literally little person. It is a representation of a small human being, originally depicted as, a, as small statues made of clay. They were popularized in the 16th century alchemy and in 19th century uh, fiction. It is historically referred to as the creation of a miniature fully formed 
human being. Ah. Uh. Yeah. And it is true that modern science has made great strides in the last hundred years or so to create artificial life. But to think that alchemists and medieval scientists not only strove to create artificial life way back then, but some claimed that they were successful. In making tiny people? Yeah, by creating a homoculus, or, as they often referred to it, a little man in a bottle. I don't know. <laughs> we see the first reference in writings from the 16th century alchemist Paracelsus. But the idea that fully formed people could be created artificially goes back even further to the Middle Ages. Uh, some say as far back as 400 to 1000 AD. There's a very old, although undated, Arabic script called the Book of the Cow. Uh, this was the first known account and claim of the production of a homunculus. Many believe that the book of the cow was originally penned by Plato, but there's no hard evidence that that's the case. In the book of the cow, it lists the required materials to create your very own homunculus at home. Like a sea monkey? Yeah, a little sea monkey kit. The children's eyes light up with holiday glee when they see that under the tree. They open the package and they find these ingredients. Human semen. What? You need a cow as well. Why? Why? Or are you. And also animal blood. Now, if you want to make your own homunculus, once you've collected those necessary ingredients, here's how the Book of Cows says you should proceed. The cow or the you would be artificially inseminated with the human semen. Then the animal's genitals would be smeared with the blood of a different animal from the same species. Mm. And then you feed the inseminated animal exclusively on the blood of that other animal. The animal then, according to the Book of the Cow, would then give birth to some sort of an unform, unformed substance. You would then place it in a powder that the alchemists had created, which included sulfur, magnet, sulfate of iron, ground uh, sunstone, and the sap of a white willow. Then you monitor its progress. You keep an eye on the blob for a while. And once it starts to show that it's growing human skin, you put it in a giant jar. Or if you don't have a giant jar, a lead container will do. And you leave it there for three days. I wish you could all see the look on Kat's face right now. It's priceless. I don't like this. Once the three First of all, if you are feeding any animal exclusively blood, mm. it's going to give birth to something weird looking for sure. <laughs> that is, that's not really mm -hmm. recommended diet. Yeah. Um, also, this sounds like something I would have made in a stream um, next to the convenience <laughs> store my mom used to work at. So, Once those three days have passed, then you must feed the homunculus the blood of its decapitated mother. Oh, for God's sake. You know, you have to do that for night, seven days. Oh, I got to get that in. It's important. Uh, you do it for seven days. Go we ahead. We watched The Black Cauldron last night. As we've talked about before, we are slowly but very surely making our way through all of the Disney animated films, and we're up to Black Cauldron because we skipped Fox and the Hound because I'm not stupid. Now, <laughs> The Black Cauldron was, you described it as a fever dream. Yeah. And I feel like this. This, what you are describing, is very similar to that kind of vibe, where Dude. it's like, and then you take this cow, and you put it in a jar, and then you feed it blood, and then you mix it with some sandstone, and then <laughs> it's like an eight-year-old wrote it. There are three different procedures listed in the Book of Cow, each creating a different type of homunculus. In one, a monkey 
is substituted for the cow or the ewe. Another uses a different recipe for the powder that you put it in when, when it's been birthed or whatever you want to call it. And the third, the time that it is incubated is longer. All of these procedures, it is said, create a different type of homunculus, but each with its own specific purpose, function, and power. Tell me about those. Well, the first type of homunculus can make the full moon appear on the last day of the month. It also allows the person who created the homunculus to take the form of a cow or sheep or ape. It can also allow one to walk on water and to discern things that were taking place in faraway lands. So it's not just a tiny human person. It is some sort of tiny magical creature. Yeah. like Henwig the pig, oracle powers. From the Black Cauldron. Yeah. The second type allowed the possessor of the homunculus to see demons and spirits and to be able to communicate with them. The third type would allow the possessor of the homunculus to summon rain regardless of what season and to also produce extremely poisonous snakes. Kind of a strange list of abilities. Yeah. All these things I'm sure were very helpful in the medieval times. In the writings of the alchemist Paracelsus, titled De Rerum Natura, he gives the recipe for creating homunculi, quote, this is directly from his text. The sperm of a man be putrefied by itself in a sealed cucurbit for 40 days with the highest degree of putrefaction in a horse's womb, or at least so long that it comes to life and moves itself and stirs, which is easily observed. After this time, it will look somewhat like a man, but be transparent without a body. If after this, it is fed wisely with the arcanum of human blood and be nourished for up to 40 weeks and be kept in the even heat of a horse's womb, a living human child grows therefrom with all its members like another child, which is born of a woman, but much smaller. Now, I think it's pretty cool. Pretty cool idea to have a homunculus. Wouldn't a fetus grown in a horse's womb be bigger? I mean, a lot more room in there. I'm just saying, maybe it's like a koi, you know, grow to... <laughs> yeah, maybe. The size of the enclosure. No? What would you do with a homunculus? Oh, well, I don't think... If I had one, I don't think I'd want it to make it rain or, or to talk to spirits. It'd be far more helpful to me if it if I could just get it to clean up behind the refrigerator and other tight spaces. <laughs> Don't worry about that. The homunculus will get it. My source information, Ancient Origins, Wikipedia, and Atlas Obscura. Wow. Homunculus. That was weird. Yeah. It's similar to the, um, the golem from uh, Jewish folklore. Very similar type of thing. Oh, I didn't realize that the golem was crafted in that way. I thought that it was just already existed. According to Wikipedia, a golem is an animated anthropomorphic being in Jewish folklore, which is entirely uh, created from inanimate matter, usually clay or mud. Interesting. Mm. I remember seeing a movie. Oh, gosh, I was a kid. It was on late night TV uh, about the creation of a golem, and it scared the living crap out of me. (laughs) I don't remember what it's called. Probably Gollum. See, I was just trying to think of the name of a movie that I watched years ago. It was a black and white movie where a guy had little people that he kept in a jar. Oh, and I really? don't 
remember if he made them or maybe I missed that part. I, I don't know, but it was creepy. I've got to tell you, the longer we've had our aura frame, the more I love it. I have kids and they live about 3,000 miles away and my daughter is expecting a child and she has been sending me updates on her baby bump through the aura frame. And since I can't be there to experience it with her, it's the next best thing. And speaking of mothers, if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate your mom in your life, Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames. It allows you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and super easy to share photos with the Aura app. And here's the thing, if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. We love Aura Frames and living so far away from family, thanks to Aura, it's the next best thing. It's like, it's like almost being there. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Box of Oddities freaks can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off, plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code Oddities at checkout to save. That's A-U-R-A frames.com and use code Oddities at checkout and you will save. Thanks Aura Frames for bringing my family a little bit closer. This message is sponsored by Greenlight. You know, as your kids get older, there are some things about parenting that gets easier. I remember once hearing my sister tell my little niece, if you put your pants on, I'll give you some Fresca. And when kids can start to reason that they get something, if they do something right, it's a lot easier to manage them. Having that conversation about money with your kids, that's not the easiest thing in the world. Fact is, kids won't really know how to manage their money until they're actually in charge of it. And that's where Greenlight can help. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made just for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on the kids' spending and savings. While kids and teens build money confidence and lifelong financial literacy skills. Your kids will learn how to save, invest, and spend wisely thanks to the games that teach kids skills in a fun, accessible way. When I was a kid, I had expected chores and then I had bonus chores. And bonus chores were where I earned money. And so if you're thinking like, hey, my kids should be doing stuff around the house. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. But maybe there's extra ways that they can learn how to be a successful financial money person. What was one of the bonus chores that you had to do? <sighs> Rub my mom's feet. And what did that pay? I don't know, like a quarter or something. Millions of parents and kids are learning about money on Greenlight. It's the easy, convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and families to navigate their life together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash oddities. That's greenlight.com slash oddities to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash oddities. And now, that thing in the middle. If you're thinking of moving to Japan, good news, there are lots of ways to make a living. But none more strange than this. In Japan, you can hire a handsome man to show up at your workplace. He'll then watch sad videos with you until you cry, and then gently wipe away your tears. For a small fee, of course. 
Kayla sent an email, hey, I just heard the episode where JG was talking about how he was excited when he found that he had instant soup. And y'all were talking about what makes soup more instant than other canned soup. Mm-hmm. I would like to point out, I also get the same excitement because so much easier to have instant tomato soup than making tomato soup because you need to you need milk and not all of us buy dairy milk on the regular so it's much easier when I can just microwave myself a soup that already has the milk in it. I just wanted to make sure JG felt heard and understood by some of us. Thank you Kayla. <laughs> I appreciate you. Andrea sent us a message. Greetings from Northern Maine. I live in Presque Isle, and I'm a daily boo consumer. Shout out to my cousin, Caston, who got me hooked on your show. I'm currently listening to Box 108, which leads me to the question, have you read The Butchering Art? It would be right up your alley. Also, have you watched We Are the Champions on Netflix? It covers the cheese rolling competition. (laughs) Side note, I understand we have friends in common, and then they talk about the friends that we actually do have in common. Any hoozle, fly my freak flag high and proud in the middle of a snow-covered potato field. Yep. Andrea. Thanks, Andrea. Presque Isle, Maine is one of the most beautiful places that you'd ever want to be uh, in the summertime. Mm, in the summer. Yeah. Like, oh. especially the uh, the middle of July during potato, potato blossom season. Yeah, it's oh just my gosh. beautiful. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. All right, what you got? Christy wrote us a message with a topic suggestion and mentioned the tradition in theater of leaving a ghost light on. Now, I'd never heard of this, so let's get into it. Theater superstitions. I'm going to start off with flowers. Now, no flowers, real flowers, that is, should be used on stage. That's just the way it is. Don't use real flowers on stage. It's bad luck. And apparently it just comes from the fact that flowers will wilt really quickly uh, under the hot lights of the theater. Makes sense. But uh, you'll find that there is a trend among these superstitions, Mm -hmm. quote unquote, that really are just like practical. But over years, it's become more of a superstitious kind of thing, which is interesting, I think. When a theater production closes, it's considered good luck to give the director a bouquet of flowers stolen from a graveyard. What? Yeah, it's <laughs> it's thought that this originated because actors at the time were very poor. <laughs> Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> and so <laughs> they wanted to butter the director up, maybe get in the next show, but uh, didn't have the money for flowers, so they just snag them. Mm-hmm. And then it became, no, it's good luck, once they find out. Yeah, sure. Like, hey, um, <clears throat> why does my bouquet say, rest in peace, Mima? Um <laughs> 
<laughs> oh, it's good luck. It's good luck. Yeah, to steal from a graveyard. Right. Uh, it's also taboo to give a performer flowers before a show. It seems that this tradition comes from opposing, rewarding an actor for their work before they've delivered it, and they should only be rewarded after they've given a good performance. And I wonder, like, if you bring flowers for someone to give them after the show and they don't give a good performance, do you just, like, tuck them away behind your back and be like, good to see you. Yep. Just <laughs> take them back to the graveyard. <laughs> In addition to real flowers, no real mirrors, real money, or real jewelry should be used on stage. Real money and jewelry were claimed to be bad luck, though it's thought to actually originate from the idea of removing the possibility of stage prop theft. If you're using real money on stage, it's yeah. easy for someone to pocket it. Again, actors were very poor. Very poor. Yeah. Mirrors were just a practicality, as stage lighting is hard enough to control without adding in reflected light from mirrors, so fake mirrors. Now, we've all heard a person is never supposed to wish an actor good luck, right. but instead say, break, break a, a leg. leg. Right. The exact origin of this expression is unknown, but there are some popular theories. Uh, one being that if havoc-wreaking spirits heard you ask for something, they were reputed to try to make the opposite happen. So if you said good luck, they'd be like, ha ha, we're going to fuck up your play. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so someone, telling someone to break a leg is an attempt to outsmart the spirits and make a good show happen. Uh, another theory is in Shakespeare's time, to break meant to bend. So to bend a leg means to take a lot of bows. Break a leg, oh. you'll have to, you know, keep okay. it. Yeah, right. Um, also, it may come from the ancient Greek practice of stomping feet instead of applauding. So you do so well that the audience might break a leg from so much stomp clapping. Hmm. Another theory comes from the days of early vaudeville, since bad acts could be pulled before they were completed, you know, with the whole big hook the thing, hook thing yeah. right? Uh, producers didn't pay people who hadn't actually performed, and there was a general policy that a performer didn't get paid unless they got on stage. Now, at this time, curtains that lined the sides of the stage were called legs. So unless you broke the visual line of the curtain, you were not on stage, oh. meaning you didn't get paid. In other words, hope you break a leg, e.g. get on stage so that you get paid. That's fascinating. Yeah. I think that one kind of makes the most sense. And it's a hell of a lot less violent. <laughs> Professional dancers, by the way, do not wish each other good luck either. Uh, but they don't say break a leg. <laughs> they might say merde, the French word for shit. <laughs> uh, so in turn, some theater people have picked that up in combinations with break a leg or whatever. Now, in Spanish, the phrase is mucha mierda. Or a lot of shit. And <laughs> this comes from the time when theaters uh, would be lined with carriages. When people came to the theater to watch oh, a show, okay. there would be carriages outside. And the more carriages, the more horses, the more horse shit would be in front of the theater at the end of the night. So they would wish each other lots of shit. Wow. Yeah. 
William Shakespeare's play Macbeth is said to be cursed, so actors avoid saying its name when in the theater. Uh, instead, they say the Scottish play mm-hmm. uh, if they need to reference it. Even quoting from Macbeth is said to be bad luck. Don't do it ever. Theater people believe that it will bring disaster. It's said that the original actor who played Macbeth died tragically during a performance of the show, and it's been cursed ever since. Also, Konstantin Stanislavski, Orson Welles, and Charlton Heston have been said to have suffered some sort of catastrophe during a production of the Scottish play. Wow. In 1849, more than 30 New Yorkers were killed when rioting broke out during a performance of the Scottish play. And some days before his assassination, Abraham Lincoln read aloud from a speech from Macbeth, (laughs) including the line, after life's fitful fever, he sleeps well. So it said, you know, just don't just don't do it. But if you slip up, if something happens and you happen to mention Macbeth, uh, there are a series of counter curses that are suggested to undo the damage. Reciting any line from the lucky play Two Gentlemen of Verona is one way to counteract it. Some will tell you to recite the line from A Midsummer Night's Dream, If we shadows have offended, think but this, and all is mended, but that you have but slumbered here, whilst these visions did appear. Or if you're more of a kinetic uh, person, you should exit the theater, spin around in a circle three times, and then spit, and then I'll undo it. Moving right along. Blue. Wearing the color blue will cause actors to forget lines. That's the word on the street. It said that blue is unlucky. This has its roots in early theatrical costuming. Blue was the most expensive colored dye. And producers, in an effort to discourage the spending of money on such luxuries, started a rumor that blue costumes (laughs) were unlucky. Okay. I love how most of these theater uh, traditions and superstitions are economically driven. Yeah. I'm just going to start doing that in our daily lives. (laughs) No, get the less expensive cream cheese. The more expensive cream cheese, it's unlucky. There's no such thing as unlucky cream cheese. (laughs) Producers of failing companies, meanwhile, would put blue garments on stage on purpose to trick the audience into thinking that the producers were doing well. (laughs) But audiences caught on to this, and they realized that blue on stage meant the company wasn't doing well. Ah. So to counteract this... (laughs) You were supposed to put silver on stage, make it visible that you obviously had so much money that you had blue and silver. Oh, yeah. But audiences caught on to this. And so, no, I'm just kidding. It didn't didn't go any further. (laughs) It's an endless cycle. Yeah. No peacock feathers. There should be no peacock feathers inside a theater. Now, this superstition is inspired by the pattern on the feather that to many looks like an evil eye. Yes. Now, the evil eye is a look directed at some unfortunate person resulting in bad luck or harm. And it's said that there are, once again, very unusual methods to reverse this curse. And that might actually be fun to get into sometime. Whistling backstage is taboo. Now, this much like a lot of the other superstitions that we've talked about, comes from practicality. Backstage stagehands would get their cues to move scenery by way of whistles. So willy-nilly whistling 
backstage could lead to accidental stage movements, obviously damaging equipment or injuring someone or messing up the play. I'm guessing this was before uh, walkie-talkies. Probably. Also, could we get some walkie-talkies? Of course. (sighs) Don't forget the cream cheese. (sighs) Uh, Roger that. The expensive cream cheese. (sighs) Also, you never say a theater is closed, but instead it's dark. If you say a theater is closed, it's said to invoke plagues, Puritans, or embezzlement. (laughs) And no one needs Puritans at a play. (laughs) They ruin everything. That finally brings us to the ghost light. The ghost light remains turned on in the center of the stage with all the other lights have been turned out. And the light is protection from spirits, because if the theater ever went completely dark, lonely and resentful ghosts would see that everyone had gone and start up all kinds of mischief. The ghost of Thespis, the first known actor in ancient Greece, is said to wreak havoc upon theaters all over the world. So you leave on the ghost light. And of course, there's a practical reason behind this as well. Backstage can be very cluttered. (laughs) So a light helps protect against accidental falls when someone stumbles around the dark and prevents accidental damage to the set. And there you have it. Thanks, Christy, so much for bringing theater superstitions to my attention. This was so much fun. That's delightful. And it reminds me that there are also local theater uh, superstitions and and traditions, and they begin in in very strange ways. There was one at uh, the Penobscot Theater where I was able to do, I did like two or three plays there. This was in Bangor, Maine. You really, you undersell yourself. You were an excellent and integral part of productions that would have been less without you. They were kind enough to allow me to uh, trod the boards, as, as we say in theater. During the production of On Golden Pond, part of the set decor included a mounted trout you know, like a like you'd find in a camp somewhere. One of those, give me back that filet of fish, give me that fish <laughs> yeah, kind of fish. Kind of like that. Yeah. Yeah, but far less musical. Um, <laughs> after that production, that prop was just hung in the stairway leading up to the actors' dressing rooms. Uh-huh. And so the next two productions that, that I was in, it became a ritual to come down the stairs before opening night as you're going to the stage and touch the trout. <laughs> that sounds like a euphemism. Doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. I don't know if they're still touching the trout at Penobscot Theater, but uh, God, I hope so. Do you have any more superstitions or whatever no, was, from your that's time? pretty much it. Yeah. Just the whole, you know, dead trout one. Can we talk more about your amazing theater career and how proud I am of you? No. Okay. I got my information from (laughs) Wikipedia, of course, Broadway Direct, Steppenwolf.com, Backstage.com, and Theatrical Superstitions and Saints. We would like to thank and welcome our most recent members of the uh, Order of Freaks on Patreon. Reed and Heather, thank you for joining us. We appreciate the support. And if you would like to join the Order of Freaks and support the podcast, get episodes ad-free and all kinds of other cool stuff, go to theboxofoddities.com and click the support this podcast link. And we thank you so much for your support. It helps us grow the podcast. It helps us see amazing things that we can tell you about and eat. And Lord knows we love the eating. We'll see you next time, freaks. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. Fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. Freak.
And so, let it be known that the box of oddities belongs to you, and its fate is in your hands. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com On Facebook at Facebook.com slash Box of Oddities Podcast On Twitter at Box of Oddities And Instagram at Box of Oddities Podcast Copyright 2023 All rights reserved Brain's a big dumb head. Boop, 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 dumb brain, dumb, dumb brain. Woo! Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.